0: Okay, so Exodus um, chapter 1, verses 1 to 22. Okay. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher, the descendants of Jacob, number 70 in all. Joseph Joseph was already in Egypt now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died but the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them then a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt look he said to his people the Israelites have become much too numerous for us come we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put the slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithon and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter, with hard labour, in brick and mortar, and with all kinds of work in the fields. And all their, la- and all their hard labour, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. The King of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him, if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared god he gave them families of their own then pharaoh gave this order to all his people every boy that is born you must throw into the nile but let every girl live amen why exodus
1: well part of my privilege as part of uh, working for port macquarie christian students is i get to visit lots of churches around town and they keep asking me to preach and I keep wasting huge amounts of time trying to work out what am I going to speak on. So I uh, decided to do what I usually do, which is pick a book of the Bible, and whenever I visit a church, I'll preach the next part of Exodus there. So you get the same. Whenever Scott uh, is away and needs me to pre- or wants me to preach for him, uh, you get the next part of Exodus from me. <laughs> Exodus is a fantastic book of the Bible, though, because so much of the New Testament relies on Exodus. Uh, and it, it's, it's kind of a familiar story, but it's not familiar enough that I think it's worth just dipping into every couple of months or every six months or however often it'll be who knows let's pray gracious father thank you for your word to us thank you for this ancient story that teaches us what it is to be your people Lord as we turn our minds to this story from so long ago please help us to have faith in Jesus it's in his name we pray amen what do we do when people threaten us for believing in Jesus? What do we do when people threaten us for who we are? In July this year, in the Chinese province of Guizhou, a bunch of elderly Christians were told, if you don't stop going to church, we're going to stop your pension. And it's not the first time they've received that threat. The month before, in the northeast of India, in a, an area called known as Jharkhand, I think I've said that right, a group of Christians were taken captive, tied up, and beaten with sticks by a group of Hindu extremists. And they were told, if you don't stop worshipping Jesus, we're going to do worse to you. And when they complained to the police, what do you think the police did? Well, they said to them, if, if you worship Jesus outside your homes again, we're going to fine you. Great. Good on your policeman. There are all sorts of threats that face God's people today. In many parts of the world, Christians are threatened with punishment and even death for their faith in Jesus. Here in the West, we don't usually face death threats, do we? but we do get threatened for what we believe. The, the threats are a bit more civilised, if you like, but they're still real threats. Here's four for, that I've uh, have been in the media in the last 12 months. Christian doctor, uh, if you won't refer a pregnant woman for, to an abortion clinic if she asks, you can lose your job. Christian baker, uh, if you won't bake a cake saying you, uh, supporting same-sex marriage. Or celebrating same-sex marriage. You can have your business destroyed. Christian judge. Uh, If you mention in a private phone conversation that you're not really excited about having to perform same-sex civil unions, sorry, same-sex civil weddings, to use the language of the area, you can be disbarred uh, as unfit to try any case. Catholic Archbishop of Tasmania if you publish a booklet about the catholic teaching on marriage and distribute it to catholic school students you can be hauled before the anti-discrimination tribunal there are lots of threats facing us as christians at the moment they're civilized but they're still threats they're real threats and they are still scary have you ever tried mentioning you don't support same-sex marriage Have you even tried mentioning that you just maybe have a reservation or or a question? I have. Uh, And it's involved uh, getting my head kicked off, basically. Uh, I've I've copped a gobful of verbal abuse. Uh, Just before the last federal election, uh, in in an online discussion uh, about the Liberal proposal to have a plebiscite on marriage, uh, I I rather blandly commented that $160 million... Uh, is pretty cheap for a public conversation about an issue that's going to change society. Well, the floodgates opened. I was sworn at, called a privileged fool, slow-minded, childish, a paternalistic moron. I was accused of being mentally ill, of living in a fantasy land, uh, and of being a genuine lunatic. All because I said, I think it's good that we talk about this issue. Imagine if I'd actually expressed an opinion. <laughs> there are lots of threats that face us as Christians at the moment here in the West. They're civilised threats, but they're still real. So how do we respond when people threaten us for our faith in Jesus? Because often it seems like things are out of control, doesn't it? Sometimes it seems like God has no say in what's going on. Well, in the opening chapter of Exodus, we find a situation where God's people are facing a massive threat. Their very existence as a people is at risk. And as we hear the story, it helps us to consider, what do we do when we're threatened for our faith in Jesus? It'll be helpful to have a Bible open in Exodus chapter 1. I'll be referring to it as we go. Let's pick up the story at the beginning. Verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt. With Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, the descendants of Jacob, uh, numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. These words set the scene for us, if you like. Uh, it's kind of like a, a flashback at the start of a TV show, previously in the book of Genesis. Jacob the grandson of Abraham, packed up all his sons and their wives and their children and moved to Egypt. Now, why did he do that? Because Joseph was already there. Okay, great. What's, what was Joseph doing in Egypt? Well, you probably know the story. Joseph and his technicolored dream coat. Do you remember that? Uh, Joseph was one of Jacob's 12 sons, and Joseph was the favorist. His dad gave him a, a, a special coat. It might have been many colors. it might have had sleeves, whatever as a, a coat that showed he was the favorite son who didn't have to do any work. Out of jealousy, his brothers faked his death and sold him as a slave. And through a series of unlikely events, Joseph ended up second in charge in the land of Egypt second only to the pharaoh they received a supernatural warning from god of a great famine coming uh, and so joseph began storing up food ridiculous amounts of food so much food that they stopped counting it because they just lost track and when the famine came as god had said it would joseph started selling the food again and this made the pharaoh incredibly wealthy By the end of the famine, the pharaoh owned all the money in Egypt. He owned all the livestock in Egypt. He owned all the land and all the people were his servants. Joseph did incredible good for pharaoh. He made the pharaoh incredibly wealthy. Now at the time, Jacob and his family back in Canaan were starving So Jacob sent his other sons to Egypt to buy food. Despite decades apart, Joseph recognised his brothers. They didn't recognise him. He was wearing Egyptian clothing. He was speaking Egyptian. Uh, They thought he was dead. He could have got even. He could have thrown them in jail or had them executed and they would never have known it was him. But instead, he forgave them. And he invited the whole family to come and settle in the land of Egypt to be saved from the famine. But, verse 6, now Joseph and all his brothers and all the generation died. Not even the second most powerful man in Egypt could hold off death. Death claimed Abraham. Death claimed Jacob. Death took Joseph and all his brothers. The 70 who moved to Egypt all died. But death could not defeat God's promises. The Israelites became exceedingly numerous. You see, God was keeping his promises to Abraham. He'd promised Abraham people, land and blessing. People. Abraham's descendants would be as many as the stars in the sky. Land. God would give them a land of their own. A place they'd be safe. The land of Canaan. Blessing. God would bless them and through them he'd bless the whole world. And here in Exodus 1, we see that God has kept the first promise. The people of Israel were uncountable. The land was full of them. But there was a problem. There was a problem. A new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. A new king who did not know Joseph. Was he ignorant of his history? Did he genuinely not know uh, the good that Joseph had done? The storing of food, the saving of many lives. Did he not know of Joseph's loyalty to the pharaoh? Uh, That he'd stored up money uh, and land and possessions for the pharaoh? Did he not know these things? Did he not know that his current prosperity was due to Joseph? Or did he just not care? Did he choose to be ignorant? Did he choose to ignore the past? Either way, this new king did not know Joseph. Now, who knows what is a massive theme in the book of Exodus. Uh, Again and again through the book, God says, I'm going to do this so that you will know who I am. And really, that's the theme of the whole Bible, isn't it? That God has acted again and again in history that we might know who he is. He has acted to reveal himself to us, And this act of revealing was finally completed in the Lord Jesus. If you want to know who God is, look to Jesus. If you want to hear God speak, listen to Jesus. If you want to know what the maker of the universe has to tell you, listen to Jesus. God has made himself known to us in Jesus. Uh, But that's getting well ahead of ourselves in the story. Uh, Let's go back to Exodus. The new king did not know Joseph. And so he did not know Joseph's God either. And so he had no interest in trusting the God of Joseph. And we see that in the next verse. Verse 9, look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. He was afraid. There were lots of Israelites. Uh, The land was full of them. They're possibly even more numerous than the Egyptians. More powerful too, if that's the case. So what to do? Well, the plan is in verse 10. Come, we must become... Sorry, that's the wrong... We must deal shrewdly with them or they'll become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies... Fight against us. Maybe even leave the country. What's the plan? Deal shrewdly. Be wise. Be clever. <laughs> and then oddly, he interrupts the plan uh, and, and just gives a few more reasons why the people of Egypt should be afraid. Th- I think there are three reasons. The first one is the Israelites are going to keep multiplying. You think there's a lot of them now? You watch. If we don't do something... There's going to be even more of those pesky Israelites. The king was afraid because the Israelites were going to keep on increasing. Number two, if war breaks out, they might fight against us. The real danger was not just that there would be many Israelites. A big population is kind of a useful thing, actually. No, the danger was that the Israelites might fight against them. They might use their numbers against Egypt. They're a threat to national security. The king was afraid that he might lose power because of these Israelites. And you know, that doesn't sound totally unreasonable, actually. He's got this foreign population living in one particular region of the country with a strong ethnic and religious identity that marks them out from everyone else in the country. A a ghetto, if you will. There's nothing tying them to his nation. They've got no reasons for loyalty, as far as he can tell. That's a bit uncertain i think he's got some reasons for fear i can hear some echoes between this situation and that of christians in china see the government of china keeps cracking down hard on christians why do they do that well because a christian owes their allegiance not to the nation but to jesus and the leaders of the communist party have understood this this is dangerous If push comes to shove, who will a Chinese Christian side with? The nation or Jesus? I think there's also some echoes of Islamophobia here. The the fear of Muslim people. The king of Egypt was worried by this increasing number of Israelites in his land. And rightly or wrongly, I think many Australians have a similar fear about the increasing number of Muslims in our land. The fear comes from uncertainty. Where do their loyalties lie? Uh, Muslim people have a strong ethnic and religious identity that shapes how they operate. Uh, For many Muslims, actually, religion and culture are two completely inseparable things. When they look at the West, they assume that because Christianity comes from the West, that the West is entirely Christian, and so that everything comes out of the West is Christian culture. So they look at Hollywood, and they think that's Christian. No wonder they think we're a bunch of infidels Um, because in the Muslim mind, religion and culture are completely inseparable. And so if push comes to shove, who will they side with? It it is is a slightly scary situation, isn't it? But the parallels with this story can actually help us keep our heads in that situation as well, because the fear can actually be self-fulfilling. See, the king of Egypt was afraid that the Israelites might turn on him, that they might fight against him. The worst thing he could have done was made their lives hard. The worst thing he could have done was to give them a reason to hate him. Oppression makes people more likely to rebel, not less. And so I feel like that's got to colour our interaction with Muslim Australians as well. If we're suspicious of them and and hold them at a distance and and keep telling them that we don't trust them and that we don't like them, what's that going to do? It's going to push them away, isn't it? It's going to keep holding them at a distance. Uh, But if we embrace them and welcome them and share our lives with them uh, and and share with them the things we love most about Australia, what's that going to do? It can't be bad, can it? Let's go back to our story. Fear number one, the king was afraid because there were lots of Israelites. Fear number two, the king was afraid because they were a security threat. Fear number three the king was afraid that they might pack up and go. I actually think this is his biggest fear. The king was afraid the Israelites might leave because they represent an enormous workforce. They contribute a lot to the national economy. What if they go? According to the king, there are more Israelites than Egyptians. He says they are more numerous than we are. If they went, he'd lose economic power. So what did he do? How did the Egyptian people deal with these fears? What did they do to try and stop the promise of God to make his people as many as the sand on the shore? Well, verse 11, the king stops speaking and we start to see his plan enacted. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. The Israelites were put to work. And this isn't domestic labour, you know, working on farms or cleaning houses. No, this is chain gang territory. This is convicts, pickaxes, back-breaking labour, breaking rocks, moving heavy loads. If we work them hard enough, most of them are going to die. And those few that do survive are going to be too tired to have families. And if we keep the men in concentration camps all year round how are they going to have families? It's brutal logic, but it makes a certain amount of sense. So the Israelites were put to work improving the country, building infrastructure. They built two whole new cities, Pithom and Ramesses. And now the story refers to these as store cities, and exactly what that means, we don't know. Uh, it's not really, just really not clear. Perhaps they were storage facilities for food and equipment and military supplies. Perhaps uh, perhaps they were fortresses. Uh, that would make sense, wouldn't it? That You've got this whole slave population who are newly enslaved. You're going to need some more military installations to keep control of those extra people. Maybe. But we just don't know. Uh, there's lots of intelligent guesses that could be made. But for the sake of the story, what matters is the Israelites... Were put to work, worked hard, really hard. They were enslaved by an unjust king. Now, I don't know if you noticed, but in verse 11, the king of Egypt has a name change. Up to this point, he's been king of Egypt, but all of a sudden in verse 11, he becomes Pharaoh. And I can't for the life of me work out what that name change is for. You almost never have a name change in a story without a good reason. If you've got a thought about why that might be, if you're you know, someone who studied Egyptology, uh, if you're doing ancient history for the HSC, anyone? Hmm, Shame. <laughs> if you've got a thought, I'd love to hear it because I can't work out why it is. Um, but along with that, it's good, I think it's helpful to notice that Pharaoh is never identified. Uh, some people have, have guessed that this is uh, Pharaoh Ramesses II. The fact that they built the city of Ramesses is a, is a hint in that direction. But the book of Exodus just doesn't say. Who is he? Don't know. When was this exactly in history? Don't know. There's lots of intelligent guesses we could make, but we just don't know. And there's actually a good reason for that, I think. This nameless Pharaoh... Represents every ruler who would set themselves against God. As we read this story and we see that no one can stop God from keeping his promises, we realize that not even the most powerful kings of the past were able to do it either. No one can keep God from keeping his promises. God will do as he has promised, he cannot be stopped. So what happened? What's the outcome? Pharaoh enslaved the Israelites and oppressed them with hard labour. But verse 12, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. Oppression failed. The Israelite population continued to grow. Now The language here is almost like that of a plague, like an outbreak of Israelites in the land of Israelite a land of egypt almost like they're mushrooms popping up or rabbits you you try to beat them down and they just keep spreading and just as the number of israelites spread so did the fear felt by the pharaoh all the egyptians came to dread the israelites pharaoh's first prediction has come true they haven't been shrewd enough they haven't been wise enough there are even more israelites now than before What are they going to do? Pharaoh was totally unable to keep God from keeping his promises. God would make Israel as many as the stars in the sky, and there is nothing that Pharaoh or the Egyptians or even death could do about that. No one and nothing can stop God from keeping his promises. So, plan A failed. What now? Well, bizarrely, plan B is just more of the same. The Egyptians knuckle down and try harder. Uh, Let's have a look at verse 13. The Egyptians worked the Israelites ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labour in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields in all their hard labour. The Egyptians used them ruthlessly. Plan A was hard labour in a chain gang. Plan B was really hard labour in a chain gang with a bonus brutal beating. The Egyptians were ruthless and worked the Israelites to the bone. They made their lives bitter, exceedingly bitter. And that's where we're going to leave them for today. Their lives were bitter. Nothing could stop God from keeping his promises. He would make Israel as many in the stars in the sky. He would give them the promised land and through them he would bless all all the peoples of the earth. But their lives were bitter with difficult labour. They were worked ruthlessly. And if this is what it looks like for God to keep his promises, who wants it? The Egyptians were afraid because God was keeping his promise. Uh, If God hadn't kept his promise quite so well, the Egyptians wouldn't have been so afraid. God was keeping his promise, and so Israel were made slaves. Their lives were bitter. They faced brutal beatings and ruthless masters who would show them no mercy. How do we respond when people threaten us for our faith? When people use brutal words and say ruthless things about us, when they show us no mercy. I suspect this week, as the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church talks about what we might do in response to to same sex marriage, I suspect there's going to be some brutal words in the media for us. How do we react when people attack us for our faith? How do we react when people attack us for holding on to God's promises? Do we let go of God's promises and turn our backs on him? No. No. No one and nothing can stop God from keeping his promises. Evil people have always responded to God in evil ways. This isn't new. Uh, the reactions uh, to uh, their reactions don't necessarily tell us anything useful at all when bad things happen our natural response is to question what have we done wrong but time and again in scripture we see that evil people respond to god in evil ways and so when it happens to us we should not be surprised yes when when opposition comes uh, that's a good time to reassess to work out if there is something we're doing wrong do we need to change that there's wisdom in in thinking those thoughts it's worth checking if there is any truth to the accusation but just because someone opposes us doesn't mean we should give up evil people have always responded to god's evil uh, god's good purposes in evil ways Uh, and at times actually the opposition lets us know that we're heading in the right direction Consider these words of Jesus in John 15. If the world hates you, understand that it hated me first. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And they did persecute Jesus, didn't they? Though he was innocent, he suffered the shameful death of a criminal. Evil people have always responded to God in evil ways. And the gospel of Jesus calls everyone to turn back to God. It says to people, it says to all of us, you have a problem with God. You and God are not okay. Okay. You need to turn to him and ask for forgiveness. And when people hear this, they don't like it. They react badly. Uh, They shoot the messenger. Sometimes, like in Exodus 1, they hate us without reason. If the world hates you, understand that it hated me first. The mere existence of opposition should not force us to give up on God. Instead, when people threaten you for your faith, when they call you a homophobe or a bigot, when they suggest that you're mentally ill for believing in God, when they hurl gobfuls of abuse at you, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Cling to God's very great and precious promises. Nothing and no one can stop him from keeping his word. God has given us some incredible promises, He has promised us forgiveness for our sins he has promised eternal life to those who trust jesus he has promised that he will never leave us and never forsake us he has promised that jesus will return and put the world right he will deal with evil he will bring peace praise the lord nothing can stop our god from keeping his promises let's pray (coughs) father when we look around at the world it scares us Uh, it feels like it's getting harder to be a christian Uh, it feels like uh, we face more and more hostility every day lord help us to trust you Thank you for your incredible promises uh, that those that we who trust Jesus uh, will be forgiven and will live for eternity with you. Lord, please help us to hold on to these promises, uh, even in the face of, of great threats. Father, we pray that in the coming days, uh, as uh, the media likely uh, attacks the Presbyterian Church for what we have to say about marriage, Lord, help us to trust you, uh, not to be afraid, but to know that you really are in control. Father, would you please send Jesus soon? And it's in his name we pray. Amen.